The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The only thing that's changed is the administration. And so you would be walking in and saying with no new evidence... We are going to reopen a criminal case uh, that the last administration closed after a very considerable investigation, and we're going to do it uh, with no more evidence than that we kind of have an icky feeling about the way Bill Barr conducted himself. So if you're Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and you're trying to reestablish the traditional norms of the Justice Department, which are that... You know, we make decisions based on the facts and the law, not on politics, and you don't use the instrumentalities of the Justice Department to go after your political opponents. Well, that's a pretty uncomfortable thing to do, to sweep into office and reopen a matter just for no reason other than the administration has changed. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 14th, 2022. Today on Lawfare, we're publishing a piece by our editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes, and Lawfare senior editor, Quinta Jurassic, that revisits the Mueller report. Why? Because as of today, the statutes of limitations on potential obstruction charges against Donald Trump are beginning to expire. Trump's attorney general declined to prosecute, but we have heard nothing from the current Department of Justice about what, if anything, it is thinking about potential obstruction charges against the now former president. We talked about why that may be, what could be going on inside DOJ, and what we can expect from Attorney General Garland. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 14th. Where is the Department of Justice on the Trump obstruction offenses? Okay, Ben and Quinta, you wrote an article on Lawfare we published this morning, um, revisiting the conclusions of the Mueller report and considering where things stand at the Department of Justice um, in terms of dealing with those conclusions. So I think to start, we actually need a refresher because the Mueller report seems like a very long time ago and Trump has faced a couple of different investigations, one might say, since then, um, including two impeachments and the current scrutiny over January 6th. So Ben, I'm going to start with you. Can you just give us a refresher on what was the Mueller report? What was it looking at? Uh, what was the purview of the investigation? 
the Mueller report was a uh, final report on facts and set of prosecution memos related to Russian interference in the 2016 election and uh, in volume two of the Mueller report, which is uh, the volume germane to this discussion, efforts by President Trump to obstruct the investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. I was released in 2019 when the Mueller investigation finished its work. And at that time, though, Bob Mueller himself left open the question of whether uh, he thought charges against President Trump would be merited if he were not president. Bill Barr, the attorney general, closed the matter and determined both for legal reasons and for factual reasons that no case against uh, President Trump was appropriate. Okay, so Trump was not indicted in connection with this, but obviously the report had a lot of very specific details, both factual and legal, like you say, um, in terms of possible obstruction charges. Um, So Quinta, can you talk through a couple of what those obstruction incidents were that the report went through? So volume one of the report is all about uh, Russian efforts to interfere in the 2016 election and the Trump campaign's uh, receptiveness to those efforts. Volume two, on the other hand, as you've hinted, is all about obstruction of justice of the Mueller report itself. And the way that Mueller uh, constructs that second volume is essentially running through a number of instances that could potentially be charged as obstruction of justice. And Mueller kind of breaks up that analysis into looking at the three common elements of most of the relevant obstruction statutes. So that requires an obstructive act, um, a nexus between the act and an official proceeding. So there needs to be an investigation you're obstructing and corrupt intent. And so he kind of runs through all of these acts that Trump took. So the very first example listed in the report and the one that um, the statute, the five-year statute of limitations will expire as of today, February 14th, 2022, involves Trump uh, telling then FBI director James Comey, essentially uh, hinting that he might want to drop the Flynn investigation. I think the exact words he used, according to Comey and Mueller, were, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go. And so... Mueller takes a look at that. Um, He doesn't exactly say that this is obstruction, um, as Ben says, in part because of the OLC memo prohibiting prosecution of a sitting president. Uh, Mueller does some contortions to kind of not make a direct statement one way or the other. But he does hint in the way that he describes the evidence that he thinks there's substantial evidence, for example, that there is an obstructive act and a nexus to a proceeding. So that's just one example. There are uh, many more, including efforts to fire Mueller, efforts to stop Mueller's work from moving forward, and also later on in the investigation, efforts to persuade witnesses not to cooperate with the investigation or even incentivize them to lie to investigators. Yeah. And I just want to dig in a little bit on uh, some of the things you mentioned. So we know that um, 
the report itself did not make a recommendation one way or another about charges, but sort of went through what prosecutors might do in order to build a case if it were to do so. And then um, then Attorney General Bill Barr chose not to do that. And as you were intimating, Ben, um, that was for both factual and legal reasons. And Quinta, you just mentioned the um, OLC memo, that's the Office of Legal Counsel memo that has a policy of not indicting a sitting president. So Ben, can you just talk through um, a little bit more about what led to Bill Barr's decision to not instigate any prosecution? Right. So I, I guess the the antecedent point is that because of the OLC position that you just referred to, Bob Mueller himself made a decision that he could not bring a case against Donald Trump. And, you know, that position is often described, as you just described it, as a policy. It's a little bit more than a policy. It's the OLC's and thus the executive branch's traditional view of the constitutional law of the subject, that the president is not amenable to criminal indictment because of the uh, nature of the unitary executive and the impossibility of doing the job of president while uh, facing criminal charges. And so Mueller acknowledging that that position binds him took the view that it was not only not appropriate to bring a case against Donald Trump, it was inappropriate for him to articulate whether a case had merit, because if a case, if he said a case did have merit, there would be no forum in which the president could contest that. That's a highly controversial position on Mueller's part, before you even get to Bill Barr. Bill Barr, along with a lot of liberals, took the view that Mueller was being a bit of a ninny in this regard. And um, it was he was a prosecutor. His job was to decide whether a case was merited. And, uh, you know, damn it, if he wasn't going to do it, the attorney general was going to do it for him. And uh, so in that sense, Barr and a lot of Mueller's liberal critics agreed. Uh, where they disagreed, of course, was on the merits of the putative case. And here, Barr said there's no appropriate case. And of course, a lot of not just liberals, but uh, a lot of other people believed that there were uh, there was uh, were valid cases to bring against Trump. And so Barr's rationale for that was twofold. One uh, aspect of it was that he believed that there were problems with Mueller's legal theory. And here specifically, and we can get into the details of it later, but the basic problem that he identified or he, he believed that Mueller's legal theory had was that it is not clear that the obstruction statute applies to the acts of the president that are authorized by the Constitution or can be applied to the president absent a very clear statement by Congress that that's what it intended if the application might burden the exercise of his legitimate presidential powers. And so this is a it's an interpretation of a traditional OLC view of 
what's called the plain statement rule with respect to application of criminal laws to the president. Uh, the second reason, and this is, I think, you know, it is sort of separate from that, is that Barr took a very generous view of Trump's conduct. And so there are situations where, uh, for reasons, again, we can talk about later, where the legal theory problem is is less acute and Trump might very well be outside of the zone where the plain statement rule analysis would help him very much. And here, uh, Barr just interpreted Trump's actions in a very generous fashion and contended that factually there would be no reasonable basis for a case. And so, yeah, there were legal theories that underlay Barr's judgment and factual theories, both, both of them controversial. We obviously now are at a point where President Trump is no longer President Trump. So the question of OLC policy or somewhat more than policy, as you describe it, Ben, is no longer applicable as to what um, is doable against a sitting president. Uh, so we have a new administration in place, a new attorney general, and this should be potentially something that can be revisited. So that is where we stand now. And your article, I think, stands at sort of the nexus of that fact and the fact that, as as you raised before, Quinta, we are reaching the statute of limitations on certain of the incidents and potential obstruction uh, charges that could have been brought in connection with them. So can you just remind us, Quinta, what what are statutes of limitations and why do they matter in this context? So in layman's terms, the statute of limitations is the period after which you commit a crime where you can be charged for that crime. So generally, the statute of limitations for federal crimes is is five years unless specified otherwise. Um, so if I, for example, uh, obstructed justice, I, I went to Ben's house and suggested that it was a nice house and it would be a shame if anything happened to it. And in the midst of a a lawfare investigation into malfeasance of some kind, I would potentially be on the hook for that five years out. But after five years uh, and a day, I can no longer be prosecuted for my efforts to uh, threaten Ben into not cooperating with a federal investigation into our various malfeasance. In this case, um, I think the the fact that the statute of limitations is beginning to run is actually really important because there was a conversation after the Mueller report came out about whether the statutes of limitations for crimes perhaps committed during a president's term should be told, essentially meaning pushed back so that a president wouldn't be able to simply run out the clock during their term and then only, you know, essentially be able to to get off scot-free because a significant portion of the time during which the, the statute of limitations was running down, they weren't able to be prosecuted at all. Congress obviously did not take that approach. So that's why we're in the situation where and now where the statutes of limitations for these potential obstruction offenses committed during Trump's presidency are starting to run down, even though it is just a year out from when Trump, in fact, left office. So your point in um, reminding us of these obstruction charges and the possibility of um, their 
being no time like the present to look into them is that these the statutes of limitations are beginning to run out with respect to some of these incidents. And you point out that we have heard nothing from the Department of Justice about what they are doing, if anything, with what is left after the Mueller investigation, whether any of these things should be revisited, whether they have been revisited. Um, And in your article, you walk through four possibilities of why that might be. Um, So I just want to go through each one in turn. Um, And Ben, I'll start with you. Uh, The first possibility you talk about is that uh, the Department of Justice just considers the matter closed as per what Attorney General, then Attorney General Bill Barr, concluded. Can you talk us through that one? Yeah, of course. There's actually two variants of this one, and I think they're a little bit different from one another. So one is that, you know, without something to raise the issue again, it just never came up. So they never looked at it again, right? They came in, they were super busy. There's a January 6th investigation. There's, you know, ransomware. There's all kinds of, you know, you know, espionage and and other scary stuff going on. And there's a pandemic uh, and a lot of civil litigation, right? And so they've got, you know, they've got a lot of stuff to do. And the Justice Department kind of typically isn't in the habit of just saying, hey, wait a minute, did the last administration handle this correctly? And so they just uh, kind of ignored it, right? Uh, And I think that's a real possibility. The other maybe more likely version of that is that they actually made a decision to defer to the closing of the investigation by the prior administration. And that decision would look something like this, right? You, you'd you say, well, should we reopen this? You know, Barr's handling of it seems a little bit peculiar, and it certainly was politically controversial. And maybe you make a decision, no, without a specific reason to reopen a declination decision from the last administration, we're not going to, because the sort of norms of the department are that if there's not, you know, if there isn't newly discovered evidence, you kind of don't open a case against the prior administration uh, just because you feel like it, or you have a feeling that the last attorney general may not have been behaving with the highest traditions of the department. So I think, you know, one possibility is that it's a kind of active decision that, hey, unless unless something comes along that, you know, changes the landscape, uh, the department's decision to close a matter is actually a decision worthy of respect, even if we don't agree with it. And another possibility is a kind of more passive version of that, that you actually, though it's been very, very much on the minds of people like Quinta and me, it's not especially on the minds of Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco. They came in, they have a department to run. And so they're uh, doing that, as Barack Obama would have said, looking forward, not backward. Okay. And can you just uh, talk a little bit, Ben, about what exactly are, to build a little bit, what are the sort of institutional or comedy or policy reasons that it is so controversial to revisit a previous administration's declination decisions? 
Well, it's, it's controversial to revisit. It's also controversial not to revisit, right? Because this is a situation in which lots of people, and I confess that I'm one of them, have a lot of questions about the integrity of Barr's original decision. And so when you make a decision that you're not going to reopen it, you're really making a decision, you know, if Barr, you know, threw the case for Trump, we're going to let that stand. And that rightly, in my view, makes people very uncomfortable. On the other hand, here are the factors on the other side. Look, there is a long tradition in this country of not prosecuting your political opponents because they're your political opponents, right? And here, the department has investigated a matter and closed it. And the only thing that's changed is the administration. And so you would be walking in and saying, with no new evidence, we are going to reopen a criminal case uh, that the last administration closed after a very considerable investigation. And we're going to do it uh, with no more evidence than that we kind of have an icky feeling about the way Bill Barr conducted himself. So if you're Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and you're trying to reestablish the traditional norms of the Justice Department, which are that, you know, we make decisions based on the facts and the law, not on politics, and you don't use the instrumentalities of the Justice Department to go after your political opponents, well, that's a pretty uncomfortable thing to do, to sweep into office and reopen a matter just for no reason other than the administration has changed. And so I think there's a this one has a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't quality to it. Okay. And uh, Quinta, uh, you had as your second possibility that you guys articulated in the article, the possibility that the Department of Justice did in fact review Bill Barr's conclusions. Uh, can you talk us through that one? So this possibility centers on some of the legal questions or problems that Mueller's investigation snagged on a little bit. And what I mean by that is that after Mueller lays out all of these instances of potential obstruction in the Mueller report, there's a legally very dense section of the report that's essentially walking through why it is that the special counsel's office thinks these could be obstruction of justice, even though it was the president who committed them. And the reason they need to do that is that the president obviously occupies a a bit of a unique position in American constitutional law. And as Ben has already mentioned, there's a a concept um, that the Office of Legal Counsel has relied on known as the clear statement rule, where OLC has pointed to statutes saying, you know, we we don't necessarily think that these statutes apply to the president absent a clear statement to that effect in the legislative text. So then the question is, all right, the obstruction statutes don't explicitly say, yes, the president can do this too. Um, So can the president obstruct justice, legally speaking? Uh, Mueller concludes that the president can. But there are a lot of really tangled issues here. And Jack Goldsmith wrote in Lawfare when the Mueller report was first released, kind of setting them out. Um, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but there are issues just on the the level uh, that I just raised. And then there's also the additional question of, okay, well, what if the president is actually doing something that is within his powers as president under Article 2, but is potentially obstruction? Can that be charged? 
so a good example here is, for example, uh, asking the FBI director to drop a case or firing the FBI director. I don't think anyone would disagree that those are eminently under Trump's presidential power as the chief executive, and yet Mueller is identifying them as examples of potential obstruction. And you can uh, look at this issue around the clear statement rule and sort of interpret that more or less aggressively to say things that touch on the president's Article II powers raise this clear statement issue, or you can say even more broadly, um, and, and Jack makes this case in his piece, that uh, the clear statement rule would preclude application of the obstruction statutes to presidential conduct so long as applying it in that way would arguably limit the president's constitutional role. So that's it could potentially do so, not not definitely. So that's a pretty dense legal thicket. And one of Ben and our, my suggestions was that it's possible that the Justice Department decided to look at this at these issues, you know, reopened them looked at these legal questions and considered uh, and took took the same view as Attorney General Bill Barr, essentially saying, you know what, I, I don't think that these laws could apply to the president. One major piece of evidence in this theory is that uh, OLC actually produced a memo at Barr's request in 2019 that was involved uh, in Barr's decision to decline prosecution that makes this case. And that's what I mean when I say that Barr was making this argument as well. So it's entirely possible that the, the department agrees with that OLC memo, or at least has decided not to withdraw it. And for that reason has made the call that no matter what it thinks of Trump's activities and whether or not they might have been legal, you know, had he been anyone but the president, that in this case, it just isn't the the evidence isn't strong enough to have a tenable case given all of those legal questions. Okay. And I just want to sort of drill down for clarity because I think this is an area where people can sometimes get confused. There is, on the one hand, an OLC memo that says you can't indict a sitting president because that would interfere too much with his or her ability to function as president. And there is a separate OLC memo and I believe series of memos examining the question of whether crimes that may be crimes for normal people cannot be crimes for a president because of the nature of the activity and whether it fits under the president's powers, special powers as president. Is that a fair articulation, Quinta? Yeah, that that's correct. I mean, I, I, I think it gets to this point that this isn't one particular hurdle that would need to be mounted. It's a, a number of legal hurdles and a sort of a whole architecture of thinking about presidential power. And just if I can uh, add to that, you know, OLC has a complicated role here because they have the job of sort of figuring out what prosecutorial authorities are. And as a general matter, they're going to interpret those pretty broadly because, you know, that's a big executive function. But they're also, of course, the guardians of traditional presidential powers. And so here where you have the possibility of federal criminal law being deployed against a president, uh, OLC has kind of a foot in more than one world, right? And they, you know, they are, among other things, keen to preserve maximum latitude for presidents and executive 
figures to do their jobs. And so they have a they have a tough role here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Okay, so moving along, um, the third possibility, Ben, that you two discuss is the possibility that the Department of Justice has actually reopened the matter. Um, so can you talk us through that one? Right. So there's, um, just as we, as we talked about earlier, uh, Barr identified factual and just as he identified legal problems with Mueller's case, as he saw it, he also claimed that there were factual problems. And so one possibility here is that the new ju- the Justice Department has taken a look and as Quinta describes, they've uh, determined that Barr is right or at least right enough about the law that uh, a case would be very difficult. Another possibility is that they've looked at this stuff and they said, gosh, you know, Barr's all wet about the law, but he's kind of right about some of the facts. And these factual questions are are actually going to be really make a prosecution really hard. And so some of these facts that are, you know, inconvenient from a prosecutorial point of view that Barr pointed out include the fact that while Trump threatened and tried to interfere a lot, he actually produced an enormous amount of information. He didn't prevent his people from testifying, though he didn't testify himself. You know, Don McGahn spent something like 30 hours with Mueller's people during the investigation. And a whole lot of the time when he would sort of ask somebody to obstruct justice, the person would just kind of ignore him. And Barr also, and I think much less plausibly, points out that he was really, the president was really upset because the underlying claims of the investigation did not have merit. This is a place where I think Barr is, frankly, at his least convincing. But I could totally imagine a situation in which the new Justice Department comes in, and especially because some of these witnesses have since uh, spoken publicly, for example, McGahn, uh, uh, seems to have spent an enormous amount of time with Mike Schmidt of the New York Times for his book. And these subsequent public statements can really complicate criminal prosecutions. So I, I think it's possible that, you know, the the new administration came in and either, you know, as Quinta describes, determines that there are legal problems, but also determines that there are Uh, some measure of factual problems. And I think this is a a particular issue with respect to some of the early uh, cases where the statutes of limitations are starting to run now, where you really are dealing with stuff that is within the core of the president's constitutional authority. You know, I never thought it was likely that Trump was going to get indicted for you know, firing Jim Comey, for example. And even Comey, I think, did not was not confident that that was an obstruction of justice within the meaning of the statute. And so one possibility is that these early cases, which were always factually troubling uh, from a prosecutorial point of view, they're very ominous. They're terrible things for a president to do. But how you exactly map them onto the statutes is not entirely clear. So they're just letting those ones pass. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, and your last possibility of the four, Quinta, you say it is possible that the Department of Justice is letting certain statutes of limitations lapse on purpose. Can you walk us through that one? The argument here is essentially that a number of the later instances of obstruction, later in in terms of time, when they took place during the Mueller investigation and therefore when the statute of limitations would lapse, are just simply stronger cases um, if the department did potentially want to bring a case against Trump. So some examples of this, the earlier cases, like we mentioned, uh, asking Comey to drop the Flynn investigation, firing Comey, for example, those run into these really thorny problems around Article 2. And there are later instances of conduct uh, instances that took place in uh, through May to July 2017, so the statute of limitations would lapse in June and July 2022, where Trump was taking actions that are arguably not within his presidential power at all. Um, in one of these instances, he ordered his White House counsel, Don McGahn, to actually uh, falsify a document, uh, create a false record, uh, saying that Trump had not told McGahn to fire Mueller when, in in fact, he had. And and that attempt actually was in uh, February 2018. So the statute would lapse in February 2023. Um, If you're potentially bringing a case, it might be very nice indeed to not have to worry about these Article 2 questions. Although, of course, you still have to get around the problem of uh, whether or not the obstruction statute apply to the president at all. There are also some other cases or some other incidents uh, where the statute of limitations is quite far out, um, and those involve Trump's conduct toward Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, um, and perhaps Michael Flynn as well, though Mueller seemed to assess the conduct toward Flynn as maybe providing less strong of a case, um, where Trump was sort of trying to encourage them not to cooperate with investigators. And in those instances, the reason why the statute of limitations is pushed quite far out is that Trump actually pardoned all three of those individuals in 2020. So the statute of limitations, um, I would argue that, that that constitutes an additional obstructive act, and therefore the statute of limitations is pushed back to 2025. Now, if you're the Justice Department, maybe you look at that and you say, we actually have quite a lot of breathing room here. We can really take our time in thinking about this, whether we do want to bring these cases, and we're just not going to worry about the fact that the statute of limitations start clocking out in early 2022 because those aren't the deadlines that we care about. 
So this is really more of a, a kind of a wait and see situation. And I will just put in a quick plug for people to take a look at the article on our site because it contains a very useful updated heat map, as we call it, that shows the different incidents and the sort of relative strength of potential charges of obstruction relative to those incidents and also includes the statute of limitations date, which is a, is a really helpful visual for what Quinto was just describing. So before I get to um, asking you both about the conclusion that you drew about which of these possibilities was the most likely, I just want to ask, how much do you think that political or institutional rationales are affecting each of these, each of these possibilities for why we are not hearing from DOJ? Ben, I'll start with you. Yeah, so I think you you can only answer that with a rumination on what it means for the Justice Department to consider politics, because this is a, a politically loaded and explosive question, and whichever way you treat it will have political implications, and some of those political implications are probably legitimate factors in Justice Department thinking. So, for example, is it a legitimate factor to consider uh, that we have a very long tradition in this country of not prosecuting former presidents? Well, I, I think it is. It's an it's an inevitable consideration, whether you consider it a, a one that uh, predominates or whether you consider it one that is ultimately to be overcome. But the result of if you're considering that, you're considering the political norms of the department's behavior, right? Because it's not the first time that a president has done things that you could contemplate retroactive prosecution for. And then similarly, if you decide that you're, you know, you're going to be very inhibited about reopening a matter that the prior administration closed without regard to the integrity problems with the way that was closed, that is itself has certain political implications. Uh, so I think the, the short answer is there's no way to avoid a decision that sounds in politics, but I'm sure that Merrick Garland would want to make a decision that was defensible in principle and to not consult the politics, you know, in any overt fashion. But the, the prosecutors who were going to think about this are certainly aware of the politics around the question. Quinta, what do you think are the, what are you seeing as the political or institutional considerations going in here? Or, or do you think that they are affecting these possibilities you identify? I agree with Ben on everything that he identified. I mean, one one way to frame it is that I think Biden selected Garland as the attorney general because he was known as sort of an, an institutionalist, not a bomb thrower. And so I am sure that Garland certainly thinks of himself as somebody who would make this decision based on principle and not on the politics. But as Ben says, you know, in this case, politics is kind of the the water that that everyone is swimming in. And so the principle that you choose to guide your decision making 
you know, whether or not you decide that the principle that is more important is avoiding the prosecution of a former president to kind of maintain that tradition, or that the principle that is more important is to uphold the rule of law in the sense that, you know, the department might go after wrongdoing where it occurs. Um, that choice of principle is itself necessarily going to be politically inflected because it speaks to what particularly Garland means when he says he wants to restore integrity to the Justice Department and what it means when he says that, you know, he, he wants the public to have trust in the department's independence. And so there's sort of no way out um, in this situation. I do think that you know, the the fact that the department hasn't said anything may perhaps itself be representative of a, an effort to find a way out by just not talking about it. But, but ben, and I, ben and I are here to make sure that we consider the sort of political implications of that as well. So circling back to the article, you've laid out these four possibilities for us. And what did you conclude was the most likely of these possibilities, uh, Ben? We think independently came to the view that the most likely is the first. That is that the department has made a reasonably conscious decision not to reopen this matter and simply to let sleeping dogs lie and defer to Bill Barr's disposition of the matter. And the reason we think it would be an attractive option for Garland is that, uh, first of all, the department does have a strong institutional norm of not reopening matters without a, without a good reason. So it uh, would be a very defensible one from that point of view. Secondly, it does uh, avoid all these hairy questions about how you would handle the specifics of the case. And it, I guess, avoids the apparent politicization of one administration prosecuting its outgoing predecessor. That's, speaking personally, my gut as to what's going on here. But, uh, you know, any of these, any of these scenarios is very possible in my mind. So you've reached that conclusion. Ben, you've articulated what the rationale might be and why it may be an attractive one to the department and to Attorney General Garland. Is that from your view, and Quinta, I want to start with you, but I'd like to hear from both of you individually. Is that a good thing? Is this is this what you would want the conclusion to be? It's a great question. <laughs> and I think I, I kind of go back and forth based on on the day. Ultimately, I'm, I guess I would say I am conscious of the different values that go into that decision. And I do think that the consideration around not seeming to engage in political prosecution or uh, at least politically motivated investigation of a former president is important. I think I, I have come to feel that simply saying, well, that's done and dusted, Bill Barr weighed in and it's not for us to second guess him, is not the right approach simply because Barr's overview of the report and his decision making was, I would argue, so clearly politicized itself that 
my worry is that it simply gives the appearance that, you know, Trump has kind of been let off the hook again. And that in itself is corrosive to public confidence in the Justice Department if it seems that people who are very powerful can get away with wrongdoing simply because they're very powerful. And so that, that I think, gives me a, a lot of pause. I'll be interested to hear what, what Ben thinks here. But I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is, as we kind of noted when we started, the Mueller report is really far in the rearview window at this point. So I do wonder whether it will be tenable for the department to wholly keep Trump at arm's length and in the way that uh, I think it is probably trying to do. For example, you know, just this week, there was news about Trump and his staff removing material that was clearly labeled top secret to Mar-a-Lago. That also raises a lot of legal questions. I would not be surprised if, you know, as more information comes out about what the president, the former president was doing in his final days in office or in the the run up to that, that there may be other legal questions raised, Uh, not prognosticating, just saying, you know, based on his his (laughs) pattern of past behavior. And so I do wonder whether it will be possible for the Justice Department to sort of let sleeping dogs lie in that sense when to extend the metaphor, um, you know, the the dogs keep sitting up and barking. Yeah, I agree with Quinta on all of the equities that she just described. And I would I would describe it my own reaction to it this way. As Benjamin Wittes, private citizen, legal analyst, if this is the disposition that the Justice Department made a decision not to look at this matter because of this, I would find it maddening. And I think Bob Mueller and his team uh, and the American people for whom they worked and assembled this record were owed a more careful consideration of this record than Bill Barr gave it. And uh, the only opportunity we were going to have to have that was when the new administration came in, and I would find it completely maddening to learn that the administration had declined to do that for prudential reasons. That said, if I were Merrick Garland, which is perhaps the more relevant question, I think the question is much harder. And there you really do have to think about the institutional impact on the department of coming into government and, you know, sweeping away a public statement of declination that the Attorney General of the United States had had given. It would be all but accusing him of corrupt decision making, or at least of wildly inadequate decision making. And it would cast a pall on the way people understand the Justice Department's work. That is, you know, what is not a prosecutable case today turns out to be a prosecutable case tomorrow because and only because the electoral winds change. And that's a very corrosive message for the department to send. So I guess I would answer your question by saying I would personally find that enormously frustrating. And I think in my capacity as a private citizen, I would oppose it and would probably criticize it for all the reasons that Quinta just said. That said, if I were advising Merrick Garland, 
and whispering in his ear as an employee of the Justice Department, I might actually give precisely the opposite advice. Do you think, though, that as we have seen and as was sort of emphasized when President Biden chose Attorney General Garland, that he would be responsible and uh, he would sort of reestablish the integrity of the department as an institution supporting the rule of law. I mean, every era has its sense that it's living in unique times and everything is different now. But I think we can, most of us can agree that Trump and his administration was objectively different, especially in terms of its willingness to flaunt the rule of law and and norms. So isn't even from the Department of Justice perspective as an institution and maintaining these interests in institutional integrity and these equities that you've talked about, isn't there some countervailing equity that that relates to the purpose of the institution as being the enforcer of the principle that no individual is above the law? There absolutely is. And that's why it's a hard decision. And that's why if I don't sound like I'm certain, it's because I'm not. But you might, as Merrick Garland, take the view, hey, there are a bunch of matters on which he has criminal exposure that do not involve a situation in which the attorney general publicly closed the case. He's got an ongoing grand jury investigation in Fulton County, Georgia. There's a criminal referral from the National Archive about those documents that he flushed down the toilet or took to Mar-a-Lago. Or, and, you know, he may yet have his, as Roger Stone would poetically say, have his time in the barrel. But, you know, it's it shouldn't be over a matter which the Justice Department authorized a two-year investigation or an 18-month investigation by a special prosecutor and then closed. When When a special counsel investigation is closed, that should mean it's over. Now, would I be comfortable with that as a disposition? No, not at all. Do I think it might be how he would think about it? I think it's very possible. And I I do think that view has some integrity. Okay. So after you've run us through all of these possibilities, um, you know, again, these are these are speculations as you point out, because we haven't heard anything from the Department of Justice or from Attorney General Garland. So Quinta, I want to start with you. What is it that you would like to hear from the Department of Justice on this subject? Well, I think there there are two questions. I mean, one is what I personally would want to hear in terms of what I would want to hear from the department about how they're thinking about this. And the other is just that I want to hear from from the department. I mean, part of what moved Benjamin to write, to write this piece was that they've been quiet. And in that silence, it's really hard to know what's happening. And I would argue that if they don't fill that silence, everybody will get to come up with their own theories about why the department hasn't acted so far. And frankly, I think that a lot of people who 
we're hoping for some form of accountability for Trump will look at this and say, you know, the, the department is simply too chicken. This was a political decision to let Trump off easy. And that's not something that encourages public confidence in the department at all. So to that extent, I think my my real wish is just that Garland or perhaps Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco or someone would simply come forward and make some kind of a comment that gives us something to hold on to here, you know, that they're in, in terms of how they're thinking about uh, the investigation. And I'll, I'll leave it to Ben to sketch out what that comment might actually look like, given the constraints on what the department can say. But in the absence of that, all we can really do is just cross our fingers and hope that they're thinking about this in a careful way. And I would submit that that's just not good enough. Yeah. I mean, any of these scenarios is defensible, right? I mean, there are actually, if you, if you include the possible indefensible scenarios, the piece would have been much longer, right? These are, these are a set of scenarios that we think a reasonable department of justice leadership could be contemplating that or could have contemplated in a fashion that could have brought us to the current situation. I don't think it is defensible not to say what land we're in. If the matter was never reopened or was reopened and has subsequently been closed again, you can say that. You know, the department's policy is that they don't comment on pending investigations. It is not that they don't ever confirm that an investigation once existed and has been closed. And so if, you know, if you've decided not to revisit it out of deference to the prior administration's contentions about, you know, management of the Justice Department, there's no reason why you why the attorney general can't say Bill Barr closed this matter in March of 2019, I believe, uh, and uh, we have had no occasion to reopen it, right? That, there's no ethical or normative reason why you can't say that. If you've looked at it and decided not to proceed, uh, you can say we reopened this matter on such and such a date and for reasons that I'm not at liberty to go into, or we concluded that there were legal or factual impediments to bringing a case, right? There's, again, no reason why you could not say that. In fact, that's actually what Bill Barr said when he released the Mueller report. The only difficult situation is if you actually do have a matter open. And then, you know, honestly, the department has... A, a certain set of, you know, conditions in which it will confirm an investigation exists. Um, most famously with respect to this investigation, of course, uh, Jim Comey did it in a in testimony to Congress with the authorization of the Justice Department, right, that there is an investigation of the Trump-Russia matter uh, in, in March of 2017. And so you he could do that. He could also simply say that, you know, he's not commenting on a pending investigation and thereby letting people conclude or infer that there is a pending investigation. If he wanted to say something, he could. And I think the most important question really is the most important thing for the department is is to figure out a way to articulate which of these scenarios we're in. And I think really the the other question, zooming out a little bit, is 
you know, the department is very busy right now. There are a lot of controversial things going on, a lot of controversial things specific to Trump going on. So, you know, the public affairs office is uh, weighing what sorts of things it wants to have the attorney general or the deputy attorney general speak to the public about what is your case for making sure that this is prioritized as an issue that that the department owes clarity to the public on? Well, I mean, it, it, it's not uh, its priority, evidently. The, look, I, I think the public deserves a closure on the question, was Bill Barr in 2019 the final word on this subject? And I, I, I just think this, look, this was an episode that, you know, triggered an impeachment inquiry. It was a, uh, or it triggered uh, oversight hearings that then fed into the impeachment inquiry. This was a big deal. And there was a major, major special counsel investigation on this. I think the attorney general owes it to the public to to give some sense of what happened to volume two of the Mueller report, even if the sense is, we ne- the answer is we never looked at it. And Quinta, what would you say if you were advocating for releasing some statement to the public on this? What is the reason to do it and do it now? I'm I'm going to be uh, a repetitive and, and say that I, I agree with Ben. I mean, I think that, again, it's easy to forget how important the Mueller report was and is simply because it's so far in the rearview mirror and so many different crises have happened since then. But I would argue that, you know, there's a pretty direct line between what happened as set out in the report and many of the crises that we're seeing today, that the the Mueller report and the failure politically to respond to the report, I think, is where Trump really learned that there is an enormous amount that he can get away with and that he will not face consequences for that. And you can draw a straight line from that to the Ukraine, um, his pressuring of Ukraine, which led to the first impeachment. You can draw a straight line from that to his efforts to overturn the election to January 6th and the second impeachment. And so I do think that, you know, politically and morally, there is a, a strong reason for the department to at least tell us how it is thinking about this set of facts, even if it may not have the answer that we want, simply to know that the people who are currently in power are at the very least taking this seriously and did put thought into how they're handling it. Okay. I think we are going to have to leave it there. Ben and Quinta, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series, The Aftermath, which looks at the government's response to the January 6th Capitol attack. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.